would the view of Christ was in the early church. So listen to the word of God. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. The Greek can also be translated as something to be flaunted. Okay? But emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name given to Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, in the midst of the many voices that are both within and without, may we hear your unchanging word that comes to us through your word proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm not someone who actually believes in the inevitability of progress. I think sometimes we go forward, Frequently, we go backwards. For instance, you don't hear much about prison reform anymore. I, I, I had a lot of, I think I had four minors, three minors in college, and one of them was sociology. And when I was in college, there was a lot of talk about prison reform, which had begun in the 60s. Matter of fact, there was an amazing book uh, by Tom Merton, who was a uh, peniologist and also had been a warden in the Arkansas System. He wrote a book called Accomplices to the Crime, The Dilemma of Prison Reform, and exposed really the scandal and violence and even murder, even murder that happened in the Arkansas prison system, which happened throughout the country. Some improvements have been done, but we haven't really done much. It's not really an issue people talk about anymore. There was a movie that was based on that book that came out, you may remember, it's a long time ago. The movie was Brubaker starring Robert Redford. And there's a scene in towards the beginning of the movie where Robert Redford is there as a prisoner. He's cleaning up a cell. And a young Morgan Freeman, who is a prisoner but also has mental issues, takes a prisoner hostage and is, and is choking this guy. And he says, I have demands. <laughs> you know, well, he makes kind of obscure demands. He wants a son, he wants a... Uh, a, uh, a window in his solitary time confinement cell. He wants the cell to be painted yellow. I mean, it's kind of a series of ridiculous demands. But Robert Redford said, okay, we can do that. You know, he's talking to him. Eventually, Robert Redford tricks him, puts him into a cell, and turns to the guard and says, take me to the warden's office. And the guy turns a gun on him, and he goes, I'm the new warden. Brubaker, who is a fictitious account, had come into the prison pretending to be a prisoner in order to see what it was like on the ground and then reveals himself as the warden. And I often thought, I remember when I first saw that movie, that it was such a powerful image of, in a sense, what, kind of what happens in God becoming human. This idea of 
emptying himself. That God, in the second person of the Trinity, the Son, emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness. All right, the, the Greek word there is kenosis, this idea of self-emptying. Somehow, the mystery of Jesus is that he was son of Mary, but also the son of God. I think God's creative act uh, in the origin of the cosmos means life has worth. But as Dietrich Bonhoeffer observed, because God in Christ walked the earth, life has meaning. This emptying is a radical identification with human suffering. How do we respond to the tragedies of this week? How do we respond to any tragedies in our life? The ones that we all face. Well, part of the Christian response to that is that we believe in a God who became one of us in a large part, to be in solidarity with our suffering. St. Bernard of Clairvaux said this, it was love that motivated his self-emptying, that led him to become a little lower than angels, to be subject to parents, to bow his head beneath the Baptist hands, to endure the weakness of the flesh, and to submit to death, even upon the cross. But it's not only a statement about who Christ was. I think it's a statement about who God is. He did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. One way of understanding that is to be divine is not something to be flaunted. You know, I shared this week my daughter-in-law's response to the tragedy in Israel. It was in my, the newsletter. And, you know, there are so many heartbreaking stories, we don't have to reenact them. But the story of a mother who saved her son by using her body as a human shield, in some ways is extraordinary, but, but that's just what mothers do, right? I can still see my daughter-in-law, you know, talking to little Charlie, saying, I, I'll, I'll protect you. I'll protect you. The mom's sacrifice, right? My mom had gotten out of West Virginia to pursue a career, but gave it all up to have me. All of you who are mothers carry those marks in your heart and your body, right? There's something about sacrifice that is not only at the heart of the life cycle, but it is the heart of who God is. What I did with the kids up here, right? Okay. I don't know, those are your parents. Maybe, you probably don't remember it because all our, our brains are damaged from being parents. Um, <laughs> but, but there's probably at one point, before you had kids, you said, I think having kids will make us happy. <laughs> and, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, right? It's like the best thing you do, right? It's the most amazing thing you do. 
but it, it basically destroys your life. It really does, right? It is the end of, it's the end of all happiness, right? It really is the end of all happiness. Because, because you know, they're, they're, they're with you and they drive you crazy and then they're away from you and you worry about them and then they grow up and you don't really have any power over them but you still worry about them and then they call you when things are really bad and there's not much you can do and then you die. So that's pretty much how it goes. <laughs> Uh, you know, I've never seen my son and my daughter-in-law more happy, and I've never seen them more exhausted. And they have this lovely little apartment that doesn't, I can't see it anymore because there's like strollers and it's baby stuff. And this is just a baby, it's two months. We haven't even gotten to the, the stuff where they start to crowd your house, right? right? But the whole point is that love is an act of sacrifice, Right? That's the very nature of love. That's the power of it. That a mother laid down her life for her son is extraordinarily the ordinary thing that love does. The emptying of Christ is not a novelty in the life of God, but it's an expression of who God is. The creation story. You know, the first creation story, Genesis 1, is, is kind of this beautiful poetic, cosmic creation, right? It's what the priestly writers gave us in the exile. But the second creation story in Genesis 2 is the older one, the more primitive one. And there's something beautiful about, and, and, and awkward and crude about God getting down on God's hand and knees and, 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 and sharing God's breath into this clay creature, right? Adama. <clears throat> we translate it man, but it's, it's kind of like the earth creature. I, I would argue that man does not become man until there's a woman, right? Until that, but that's, that's a whole other sermon. Um, yeah, and I think that's actually, actually one of the power behind the story. But, but God just keeps trying to make this earth creature happy, right? Okay, so he gives him a garden. He gives him something to do. I, by the way, God never quite gives up the garden idea, right? God keeps trying to give us a garden throughout the whole story. God, God keeps trying to say, hey, I want to give you good gifts. We just keep blowing them up. Then he gives him the garden, right? And he says, oh, but it's, it's not good for him to be alone. So he gives him animals. And you get to name all the animals. Okay, so it's kind of a great, I don't know how long that took, but when, when Ab gets done with that, that's, he's bored, right? But you have this wonderful kind of anthropomorphic image of God just trying to come to humanity on humanity's terms. There's a great um, Jewish mystic, Isaac Luria, whose family was expelled from Spain under Isabella and Ferdinand in 1492. He eventually ends up in Egypt and then uh, spends his last couple years at Safad, the, the great mystic center there in the Galilee. And he had a theory of creation that's very similar to this idea in Philippians 2. This idea that for God to create, God had to withdraw. Um, and that in that withdrawing, there's a kind of brokenness. And that the human job is to tikkun, to help restore the broken pieces. 
And I think the story of the incarnation is exactly that. It's this idea of God entering into the broken world. And this broken world will break him as well. But that's what love does. Richard Rohr, the great Franciscan thinker, says this. Everything you've ever seen with your eyes is the self-emptying of God into multitudinous physical and visible forms. In other words, infinity is forever limiting itself into finite expressions. And this could even be called the suffering of God. But Christ learned this self-emptying or kenosis from his eternal life in the Trinity. It's not just Jesus who suffers, but the cross is a visible symbol of what is always going on inside of God. In many ways, for God to create is for God to break God's own heart. There was this wonderful literary circle um, at Oxford in the uh, 30s and 40s, uh, up to the early 60s. And it included Adam Fox, uh, who's dean of Mandolin College, uh, Owen Barfield, someone you may not uh, know his name. He was an English philosopher, but you maybe know the names of the people he influenced. He's a person who helped C.S. Lewis convert. He influenced Tolkien and T.S. Eliot. And both Lewis and Tolkien were part of this group called the Inklings. One of the most beloved members of that group was a man named Charles Williams, who died during World War II. He was a fascinating guy. He wrote these strange metaphysical novels. He's a fascinating character. And one of his novels is called The Descent into Hell. A very, it sounds like a really uplifting book. It, it is, actually. It's, it's actually a wonderful, strange book. But it's this group of, uh, of people vacationing in the English countryside, and they're putting on a play. Okay, that's the whole narrative. But there's a lot going on underneath. We'll just leave it at that. But the protagonist of the book is Pauline. And she has this incredible fear of running into her doppelganger. That she feels like her exact opposite or exact uh, imitation of herself is out there. And that if she runs into herself, she'll go mad. Okay. A lot of symbolism there, right? If we actually run into ourselves, what happens? Well, the tyranny of self can manifest in many ways, right? Hubris. Self-loathing, which is a similar vice to pride. Fear, hate. We dull the senses, we accumulate. All these things that keep us from encountering the living God. Now, kenosis that we're talking about here, the emptying of God is how we understand who Christ was. And as I've talked to today, the emptying is also a way to understand how God and God's self is. But for Paul, all this talk of theology and all this speculation is primarily a way of thinking about how you and I should live. He says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Remember last week we talked about we're to have one mind, one heart. Well, that one mind, one heart is not some sort of uniformity or conformity 
It's not some sort of tyranny of cult of personality, which will always lead to destruction. Let me say it again. Cult of personality will always lead to destruction, whether it be in religion or politics. But no, it's the mind of Christ. That's what we're to have. Christ's self-emptying is a model for how you and I are to live. As Jesus said, if anyone would save his life, they must lose their life. Well, what does that mean? Well, we talked about St. Francis a couple weeks ago, and Francis' father was upset with him. Um, and when Francis was trying to uh, renounce everything and become a monk, his father said, you don't even own the, the clothes on your back. To which Francis took off his clothes and handed them back to his father, which was a little awkward in church when that happens, but quickly they covered him up, all right? What does it mean to lose one's life? What does it mean to empty oneself? Well, there's no one answer, right? There's no one path, but it does require self-examination. It does require not fleeing from our true selves. People who are go through 12 steps programs, one of the important steps is the moral inventory. And that's really based on an old practice, an old Christian practice called purgation, where you examine the things in your life that keep you from God. I once had a colleague tell me that they hated another one of our colleagues. And this person was difficult. But I can still remember being broken and hearted. I couldn't talk to him anymore. Which that doesn't, things don't usually bother me. But there was something about using such a strong word. I said, but, but you can't hate that person. And he goes, yes, I can. I'm, I'm forgiven. God loves me. I go, Maybe not so much. Because, <laughs> now God's love is unconditional. But wherever there's hate, there's no room for God's grace there. Wherever there's fear, there's no room for God's grace there. Bitterness is what hate becomes, right? Or wounds become if they're not then tended with. Whatever's bitter inside of you, there's not room for grace there. Grace fills empty spaces, but it can only enter where there is a void to receive it. And it's grace itself that makes that void. Simone Vey. What does it mean for you to have the mind of Christ? It means to let go of the things that are keeping you from God. And I'm not minimizing whatever hurt or anger or bitterness or fear is inside of you. I'm not minimizing that. I'm just maximizing what grace can do. You want to be free? You want to break the cycle of hate and violence in this world or the cycle of despair and hardness in yourself? Well, God made room for us by a mystical reduction. 
Our hearts can only be expanded to be the home of God if there's room there. And there's nothing that you're holding on to that's worth keeping God out of your life. I had a wise old spiritual director one time say to me, what can satisfy a soul if God is not enough? (laughs) The answer is nothing. But saying yes to God is everything. Nothing can take that away. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. I thought it'd be appropriate today, instead of doing the creed, that we stand and pray together the peace prayer that's attributed to St. Francis. We should we pray this for ourselves, for our community, we pray this for our world. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I might not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. You may be seated. And I invite you to continue your worship by giving to God your gifts, your tithes, and your offerings.